Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, October 10th, 2022. Happy Columbus Day. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist and AEI Fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An Associate Editor and Author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. First, an apology to our subscribers, our print subscribers. Uh, You may have noticed that there has been a delay in your receipt of our November issue, the physical issue. It's been online since, um, you know, for for several weeks. But um, there was a problem uh, at our printing plant that delayed the production. On October, October issue. I'm sorry, October issue. Uh, that's right. And uh, there was a problem at the printing plant that delayed the printing of the of the issue of piece or something or press broke down. And so as a result, we are we are actually closing our November issue tomorrow. And uh, so you may end up with two physical issues of commentary uh, arriving within two weeks of each other. Uh, and uh, that is obviously not the way a monthly is supposed to work, and we apologize. Um, but of course, everybody who has a print subscription for commentary also uh, has access to the issue online uh, as as we release it. If you don't know how that works, um, please uh, email us uh, at podcast at commentary.org, and we can send you instructions on how to log in if you are a paid subscriber. Um, the uh, November issue, which we are closing, is a blockbuster. We have a remarkable cover piece by Barton Swain called The War on Work. We have a equally remarkable, if not more newsworthy piece in some sense on uh, from a professor at Yeshiva University named Joshua Carlip on the crisis and disaster that has befallen American Jewish Studies in Academia, a great piece by Jonathan Tobin on the um, distortions and uh, and uh, inappropriate historical parallels being drawn by Ken Burns's celebrated documentary, The United States and the Holocaust. Our own Abe Greenwald on Tom Cotton's new book. Uh, many, many other uh, great things, and th- that will probably be available sometime Wednesday online and then as i say uh, hopefully the printer our printer is gonna uh, be fully up to speed and it will be in your mailbox as when it should be uh, this month so uh, an enormous amount of uh, 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 an acceleration of the war in ukraine uh saturday uh the somebody uh blew up part of the um, Kerch Strait Bridge, or Kerch. I don't, actually don't even know how it's pronounced. Noah, do you know how it's pronounced? I'm just going to say Kerch. Because, I like Kerch. Okay, we're going with Kerch. Um, the Kerch Strait Bridge, which is 12 miles long, uh, the connecting, the fiber, <laughs> the bridge that connects Crimea uh, with Russia, uh, uh vladimir putin's uh infrastructure pride and joy part of the uh, symbol of his um annexation of crimea and they uh it was uh, uh as i say partially blown up a very uh daring uh and risky move in war and it has now been responded to with mass strikes 
on Ukraine from Russia this morning. Um, I think it's 10 cities in all uh, uh, from uh, from Lviv in the west to Mykolaiv in the south and Kharkiv in the northeast and the capital of Kiev. Um, and Putin literally says that this is in revenge, you know, this is a revenge strike and he is uh, in, in response to the terrorism of taking out the bridge. Um, of course, they blew up a bridge and he's just hitting downtown Kiev indiscriminately. Um, so what do you make of it? Well, it's a step up the escalatory ladder in his taking, his thinking, Putin's thinking. <clears throat> I mean, it makes it more difficult politically for there to be a, a resolution of the conflict. So the escalatory ladder and the political ladder kind of go in opposite directions. Um, but what else is he going to do? Literally, what else can he do besides this impotent terror strike on civilian targets? Doesn't really have the operational capability to. I mean, there's some efforts to break out from these counteroffensives that the Russians are orchestrating, or the Ukrainians are orchestrating, and Russian forces are trying to take back some towns and what have you, but to, with limited success, if any success that I've seen. Uh, so he's got nothing left in the quiver except terrorism uh, and terrorism isn't going to shake ukrainians resolve but maybe it knocks a few you know weak-willed types loose in the west and that's probably the only success that he can achieve at this stage which is why everybody's so on edge about unconventional ordinance um okay so let's let let's talk about this a little bit because uh, you know the idea that putin would have to retaliate uh, for the for the bridge i think is uh, you know was a foregone conclusion the minute the bridge was i should struck. add i'm sorry and i'm interrupting yeah. but there are very very unconfirmed details um as far as i saw yesterday as of yesterday maybe they're confirmed this morning i haven't seen um but some shakeups in leadership particularly um some rumors around this guy shoiku who's the minister of defense um, being removed from his post in favor of whom I don't know. Uh, so there's people farther down the ladder who have more uh, operational, you know, combat uh, uh, operations. And but there's this other guy who's in charge of the Wagner Group. Um, Perosian. We should tell. His name. You should tell people who the Wagner. Yeah, it's group. like a it's a militia. I mean, but you think of like it, it's not like contractors. It's a mercenary army. It's a mercenary army. It's not contractors is the wrong metaphor analogy for it, but it's similar. It's a private private group that does a lot of uh, work for the Russian Ministry of Defense. They did a lot of. They were on the ground in Syria. We had some contact with them. U.S. forces had some contact with them, but they're you know doing a lot of work in Ukraine and um and there's some power struggles inside that you know this is all kremlinology unfortunately because we have to go back to those the old days but he has problems with Shoigu and he wants him out he's been mounting this kind of information campaign against him so there's you know there's power struggles that are spilling out into into the the press in the west which is never a good sign if you want you know regime stability but it be I'm also here it would be nice to get rid of Putin I'm also reading more and more stories about how accurate coverage of the war um, is sort of breaking through the the Russian uh, sort of press uh, uh, barrier, and there's a increasing accurate understanding uh, among Russians of what's going on, and that is increasing pressure internally um, on Putin. 
Well, that also that that's that's an important point because if you look at the way that that Putin spoke about the bridge attack, calling it a terrorist attack, and then he said, you know, let no one doubt that Russia will defend herself, as if they are the ones who are who are somehow under siege from some external enemy rather than the reverse. And so his defense of himself is is to bomb civilian targets. I mean, there are hor- horrifying pictures of you know playgrounds destroyed in yeah. some of these cities. So the but but he's still using this this language that I think if if Abe's correct is not going to continue to resonate for very long. It's very clear that they are the aggressor, and the the more the Russian people see the the disparate claims he's making versus what they're actually doing and hearing from their own soldiers who were there, it's not sustainable. Well, I mean, you know, the reason for the that uh, uh, tawdry and bizarre display last week of the annexation of the provinces was precisely to give Putin the face-saving line that these places were now part of Russia and that therefore right. any Ukrainian effort to... Um, do things in the militarily was an act of aggression against Russia, which is, um, you know, nervy uh, and uh, and and it's sort of a fascinating a uh, game. Um, I'm. It's really not clear who that's for or what or who who is supposed to fall for it, um, and what the purpose. Unless it is part of a just a you know a kind of propaganda campaign inside the oh guess what now these places are part of russia so we must defend mother russia as we have you know for 11 centuries i mean there is you can see the logic in it um um as a kind of um giving you a second day talking point uh when your first day talking point which was that you were liberating ukraine uh to uh make because uh, from its own um, Nazi uh, pedophilic leadership um, and restoring uh, the rightful place of the birthplace of Mother Russia to the bosom of Mother Russia. But when that line doesn't work because the Ukrainians resist you, and this, of course, is the big question that we'll never probably get a proper answer to, which is how much of this did Putin actually believe? Did he talk himself into it? Did he... Did he believe the bullshit that was being peddled to him by the Novo Russia um, ultra nationalist brigades uh, that have been, um, you know, propagandizing along these lines for the last 10 years inside Russia? Did he buy it and therefore made this unbelievably uh, historic miscalculation uh, to uh, invade? Or, you know, is he just uh, in unbelievably cynical and nihilistic and and just sort of like taking whatever is to hand? And it's a fascinating question, and I guess historians will debate it uh, and try to find records inside the Kremlin whenever they are declassified 100 years from now to try to figure out what was going on there. But, um, you know, what we have here is... Uh, a restoration in some sense of uh, uh, the skepticism or what could be the skepticism of the Russian public about the crap that is peddled to them by the Kremlin, which of course is the famous, the famous stories of the last 20, 25 years of the 
Soviet Union, which are, you know, the, the, that the, the Kremlin would claim this or that or the other thing. And the Russian public had already come to understand that everything that was being told to them in some fashion was a lie. They didn't know what the lie was because they didn't have any of the detailed information, exterior information to help them, you know, except from little bits and pieces from radio free, you know, from Radio Free Europe or the BBC's broadcasts or whatever, if they could get through, but there was no source of exterior information, but they just knew that what they were being told was, was false. And so they just didn't believe anything that was being told to them. And if, if we are now in a position where the line from the Kremlin is X and the public information that is coming through from ordinary people is Y, you could have a different kind of crisis because even though Putin is not, you know, Putin's a weird figure in this sense because on the one hand he's a dictator and he's he's a, a master himself dictatorial power and written re, re, revised the constitution and all of that. He doesn't want them to think he's a dictator. He doesn't want the Russian people to think he's a dictator. He wants to pose or presume that he is the that he has popular sovereignty. And we don't know what effect that will have, the loss of that sense of him as the, you know, as kind of like the Rousseauian legislator or as, or literally as the duly elected leader of Russia in these fake elections that he, you know, that, that don't have anybody running against him or where he sends the person running against him into, you know, it's to Siberia for 10 years. I would say he wants to be both, um, wants to be, a, you know, a duly elected legitimate Republican figure in the eyes of those who appreciate those things. But if we assume that he really does believe his own hype about Nova Russia and the new, you know, new Russia, then he also sees himself as the little father. And he wants right. to project that as well to a Russian people who crave, in many respects, a firm hand. Uh, that's that's a real sentiment. And he wants to be both in all things to all people and definitely both of those things. I think he probably believes that he sees himself in that in those terms more than he sees himself as this. Uh, you know, legal, legitimate president of a right. Republican government. Right. By the way, so, but that's that's in some related sense that that's taken a hit too. the the he, Putin as as the sort of capable dictator, um, because if, if even if you, if you didn't care about him in terms of, um, you know, what in the what in the West, we'd say is uh, uh, democratic legitimacy in Russia, at least at the end of the day, he said, well, he's, he's strong and he is protecting Russia. Um, and that's obviously eroding, it has well, to be eroding. And and the, the sign that that's exactly right on the world stage is that China has been, although not actively criticizing, Russia has been sort of saying, hey, let's let's calm down over there. And the only person strutting around, you know, speaking in Putin-like language is is Belarus. It's Lukashenko, right? Like they're yeah. in, you know, he he's running around acting like, you know, Cold War era little dictators did when when the their Russian leader said jump. But that's not exactly the menace that right. <laughs> Lukashenko has been in power longer than Putin has. Right. Right. Lukashenko has been in power for 30 years already. Putin's been in power for 20. So when he has no, he has some it. troops, they haven't actually sent any, as far yeah. as we know, into Ukraine, but he's, you know, been blustering around claiming NATO is going to try to draw us into war, but he hasn't, it's all rhetoric right now so far, but yeah, there's some legitimate fear. We should foreshadow just in case it happens that while Belarusian troops aren't exactly you know, an asset on the battlefield, opening up a northern front is something that Moscow could pull the trigger on. 
I mean, right. that's that was an invasion route in February, and it could very well be. Again, uh, there, I want to introduce one thing that I've seen recently, just to head it off at the pass in cases because because uh, we have the capacity to shut down rhetorical uh, debates in this country. But um, well, a line that I've been seeing recently from which illustrates the the scale of the threat posed by an unconventional. Uh, weapon use is that people who support the Ukrainian cause in the West are increasingly of the mind that it's ill-advised to even talk about it, talk about the threat of a nuclear event or an unconventional attack, biological, chemical, what have you, um, because this is the line that's being peddled by people who want to pair back support for Ukraine, most notably the MAGA Republicans, Trump et al. And if you were to give any credence to that line, you're essentially giving credence to the Russian line. And all you should do is just support Ukraine and shut up and don't think about any of these potential, um, you know, uh, contingencies that could shake support in the West, which admits that it could shake support in the West. And that would be the only reason why you would ever do anything like that. It wouldn't it wouldn't it would increase resolve to resist in Ukraine. The only objective from such an attack would be to shake support of uh, Ukraine's Western backers. And it strikes me as just very craven, first of all to you know throw brushback pictures at people who want to think through the strategic uh you know process of responding to something that horrific uh but it it illustrates that they haven't done a lot of thinking about it either probably don't want to and it's really ill-advised i mean look we yet again ten thousand times in our lifetimes we have had this where the uh body of conventional wisdom uh in this case, our foreign policy conventional wisdom, which which is tilted very aggressively toward the Ukrainians from the outset of this struggle, um, starts second guessing itself about uh, doesn't second guess the policy choices or the implications, but loses faith in the American people's ability to keep its focus and think what it is thinking. And there is this concern that um, that the American support for the Ukrainian cause is weakening over time and that therefore we will and therefore talk about, you know, the dangers posed by Putin uh, being pushed into a corner are bad and you really shouldn't talk about it that much because you will hasten the American people's flight from the support for the Ukrainian cause that they should be displaying. And that's classic condescension and a mis, I think a misunderstanding, right? I mean, for two ways, one of which is, um, A, uh, Ukraine is winning. Uh, it's not losing. And uh, Americans like winners, and you're, you're backing a side that is winning and is doing way better than we thought it would. That may be Importantly, doing- winning as an underdog. Very important that they're winning as an underdog. They're doing way better than they thought they would. We didn't have any idea that we would be in this situation now. I think everybody was very, you know, and who knows? I mean, it's a very complicated thing. But the notion that people are going to turn on Ukraine because they're winning and that there is the possibility of something terrible happening as a result of it winning is counterintuitive and goes against what we understand about what it means to back something. If you back something and it shows results, people aren't going to like, it's like, this has been money well spent. They've taken back 1200 miles of territory. They are, you know, they have the, they have this vastly, uh, you know, numerically superior and supposedly uh, militarily superior country, like, 
on its heels and 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 yeah, just like hurling missiles at buildings in cities because they don't know what else to do. Why would the why is the presumption here on the part of, as I say, the kind of foreign policy elites that America, the American support for this is going to be inconstant? It's actually this is bang for the buck we're getting here. Now, I know that Republicans in Congress or in the House voted against the last aid package and that this is worrisome. Noah mentioned this on, on, you know, both I think on Thursday and on Friday of last week that there's, it's worrisome because if Republicans take charge of the house, how are they going to behave when Biden comes to them again for supplemental money? But some of that is just sort of knee jerk. um, You know, it's like Biden wants the money. We don't want to be seen as voting for anything that Biden wants, particularly in the run up to the midterms. And so we're just going to say no the way we say no to everything. And I think a lot of that reverses if they take power in the House. I don't think that that is a principled MAGA isolationist. We're really worried about the balance of forces, and this is not what we should be spending our money on. Um, I think things alter themselves. But mostly, um, everybody is is showing an extraordinary lack of... Um, respect for the fact that the American people supported Ukraine at the outset and has every reason to continue to support the Ukrainian people. And the idea that we would be making ourselves or them or the world safer by pulling back or pulling away from that support because then Putin would stop rattling the nuclear saber is counterintuitive and i think people under, understand that well if you look if you for americans the sort of maga type americans who were against the u.s backing ukraine from the start you always were going to play it both ways if putin was was winning you'd sort of rub it rub our noses in it and say this is the this is the type of lost cause you thought it would be a good idea to support and then as Ukraine gains the upper hand, it's, oh, this is great. Now, now you're going to push Putin into, into a nuclear confrontation with the West. What, what the hell are you doing? Um, they, were, they have played it both ways. They're always going to play it both ways, which is how you know it's not principled. So Trump uh, appears in uh, this uh, rally in Nevada on Saturday, and this is where we get to the MAGA thing, right? And his statement there is as follows. We must demand the immediate rec- negotiation of a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine, or we will end up in World War III, and there will be nothing left of our planet all, because stupid people didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue. They don't understand. They really don't understand. They don't understand what they're dealing with, the power of nuclear. See, he's like, he's like, I'll see your Armageddon reference right. off the cuff, Biden, and raise you. Right. <laughs> I was just going to say, they're on the same page. <laughs> Aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So but here's the thing, (laughs) like who doesn't want the immediate negotiation of a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine? I mean, in theory, everybody wants that. It's just a question of what the peaceful end is. We can demand it till the cows come home. Who are the counterparties? What is the peace? You know, neither party in this in this struggle is yet willing to sit down 
to negotiate the end of the war because the conditions that would end the war are not yet visible. The Ukrainians are on the march. The Russians are on their back heel. They're not ready to give up. And the Ukrainians certainly aren't ready to say, okay, you can have what you took, you know, from us and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll overlook the fact that you, you know, you invaded our territory and have destroyed much of the country and, you know, done all sorts of terrible things to us. So he's right like, now, Moscow's terms are implicitly and Kiev's terms are explicitly regime change. Right. So I'm just saying like, so he is now back to being Donnie from Queens calling up on the, calling up on the, on the talk show saying, this is all crazy. You know, we're talking about the power of nuclear. Nobody understands this. Everybody understands it. That's why, that's why this is such a fiendishly difficult situation. He also, by the way, so the MAGA stuff, you know, the whole thing about how, well, you know, Russia did this and Ukraine is in, Ukraine's not really a country. And all this stuff that people said, well, you know, Putin has a point. I mean, Ukraine, there is no real Ukraine, all of that, you know, kind of weird, um, uh, you know, I'm so smart about foreign policy that I'm going to start making weird ahistorical claims using uh, using false information, but nonetheless sound very sophisticated about how there is no Ukraine and all of that. That happened back in February and March. There was a lot of that, and it wasn't just on the part of the MAGA side. Um, uh, and now we're sort of six or seven months later, and what 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 Trump wants is the thing where he says everything is terrible, and we need to do something different, or the world is going to be destroyed. Um, okay, maybe people can hear that. I'm just saying, like again, we. We put our chips, you know, on 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 Ukraine and Ukraine, it's 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 winning. Like you don't pull your you don't you don't pull your chips from the table without collecting your winnings. I mean, that's bizarre, right? And he um this is also the guy who said, by the way, not you know, I wrote a sort of anti-Trump column that was published in the Post, the New York Post on, on Saturday, got a lot of really hot. I mean, it's basically like, read these books about Trump, you're reminded of the chaos. And on the one hand, we have this, you know, blithering idiot in the White House now who's 80 years old. And on the other hand, we have Trump who, you know, ran his own administration into the ground in many ways. Uh, and he's going to be in his late 70s and really can't, you know, can't we do better? Are these really, it's the classic thing, these really the only two guys, you know, we can have. And Trump then goes and says, literally says at this rally, two years ago, everything was great. And now everything was ruined. Two years ago was October 2020. Do you remember what was going on in October 2020? He got covid he nearly died from COVID in October 2020. That's how great everything was going. Like when I hear he said, when I hear everything's relative. Say, when I hear him <laughs> saying that, and I watch some of this stuff, and I'm like, you know, I the logic is unassailable. He's the front runner for 2024. No one's really in a position to challenge him and all this. But then you listen to him and you're like, I I don't know. Like his he is he has gone to some slightly different, like the jugular. He used to have this 
incredible capacity to go for the jugular of his, you know, and go for the jugular of his enemies or anybody that he targeted. This guy who was out on Saturday night was not the jugular guy. So he wouldn't really you rather was... be in the White House getting an, an IV drip of ivermectin compared to this? <laughs> not he does. He wants it. I'm not saying he doesn't want it. Um, I just thought it was very striking, but it is an interesting thing. So he's now saying they got to come to the table and sit down and negotiate because uh, because Putin is going to, you know, going to destroy the planet. It's like I thought he liked Putin. Doesn't he like Putin? Doesn't he think so well? Look, we're the ones we make trouble all the time. But we really going to anyway, I whatever. It was just an, it was an interesting evening with Trump in 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 Nevada. Um uh I I you know, I get the whole point is like, look, I've been to four Billy Joel concerts. Billy Joel has eight, every month Billy Joel interrupted by the pandemic does a concert at Madison Square Garden and I love Billy Joel unreservedly and I've been four times he's given 80 concerts I've been to four in the last two or three years and I take my kids and we stand there and everybody sings along to every word you know every word of every song it's 20,000 people like going crazy at Madison Square Garden it is fantastic it is great but Billy Joel hasn't written a song since 1993 and Trump hasn't written a song since January 6th 2021 and it's not that you don't love a great greatest hits concert and he sounds pretty good billy joel sounds amazingly good for 73 and trump sounds amazingly like trump at 76 and whatever but um you know he's also not, not the only game in town anymore um yeah that was a huge part of his uh appeal it was like yeah yeah, he may be off the rails. He may, he may, you know, he may say things that <clears throat> are baffling or embarrassing or horrifically obnoxious. But, but who else is out there bringing these truths yeah. uh, to to us? And whether or not DeSantis runs, um, he's been among the same audience fighting the good fight successfully. Right. Well, in the right wing media, I mean, basically conservative media, I'm thinking Tucker Carlson does Trump better than Trump does now. Right. I mean, and that's actually the, in terms of the messaging, that's what people claimed they were not hearing anywhere. And they really weren't before Trump. And so right. now but that's now. And and country. and you have all these mini Trumps that people can right. throw money at. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. And I, I you know, I don't know who else. Um, not that not that you don't want the original and not that, as I say, I mean, logic dictates that he is the front runner for but there but the there's something very stale about what is going on at these rallies and even when he has a subject that he could somehow get his teeth into uh i thought he was a tough guy i thought he was like don't don't screw with america or the world and now he's like no, like bow, you know, we got to figure out what to do here because they're going to go nuclear. He was the guy who threatened nuclear war against North Korea five years ago. Remember fire and fury? We will unleash fire and fury, the likes of which the world has never seen. And people started sleeping in shelters. I mean, so now he's like a panty waist, afraid of, you know, not that there isn't reason to be afraid. It's just that it's so 
lame. This is how he responds. Like, if he wants to say Biden is lame, he's got to say Biden is lame for having said Armageddon. Not, he doesn't, as you say, have to echo Biden and Armageddon. He but, likes um, to one-up people, though. That's an impulse he's always had. But is that a one-up? I, I think he thinks it is. I don't think it is, but. I, I, okay. I, I'm I'm confused then about what the one, one-upping is. I mean, not not that you're wrong. I'm just saying I don't really understand what. Meaning Biden said his remark off the cuff and got criticized for it, you know, and it was done in private. Here's Trump just telling you, telling it like it is, you know, even being bolder and claiming all the, you know, the incorrect uh, or or ill-advised statement yeah. that Biden made. Meanwhile, let's just move a little bit over to one interesting development in the world of the NatCon, SoCon, you know, new, you know, new right uh, figures here. Uh, conference this weekend. Um uh, led by our uh, old colleague Sora Bamari, in which basically they have they have uh, uh, people around uh, Compact Magazine in this world have now announced themselves to be New Dealers. They are pro-life New Dealers. That is Sorab's new handle on Twitter. Pro-life New Deal. New Deal. I think he might be doing that in a mocking context, though, because I think another friend of ours kind of were uh, poked at him a little bit saying what do you, wait what are you guys talking about you sound like pro-life new dealers and i think maybe he's saying that ironically i'm not sure but because they don't it's see ironic and not ironic yeah. at right the same exactly. time. yeah it's very meta <laughs> they want they want control of the levers of government power to impose new a new social order right using federal government power so that's the new deal uh, you know, they will insofar as Jacobins are new dealers. I mean, we may be well, going back to the Wilson administration. Well, I mean, okay, so no, but I mean, look, the, the National Recovery Administration, which was ruled unconstitutional in 1935 by the Supreme Court, um, was pretty far reaching. I mean, uh, you know, you just have to read, um, uh, Amity Schles's book to see how that, how that works, but, um, but I just there's a discomfort that, on that side of yeah. the people who actually have an ideological inclination towards whatever that, you know, orientation is, which is kind of in cohate, but it's it's coming together, uh, sort of a, a left semi-Marxist social conservatism. It's strange, but it's coming together. Um, but they're very uncomfortable with challenges to authoritarian regimes, just just based on what they published recently. Fear of what comes after the Iranian revolution, if that's what we're looking at. Yep. Fear of challenging Putin. The only, you know, the only, in, as far as they, as I can tell, where they're comfortable challenging a, a rising, a, aspiring regional hegemon is China. And even then, with economic forces mostly. Well, Look, the, they the, were the, all, what they, would they, they, the regime they saw that needed taking down, Justin Trudeau's. <laughs> right. right right well they're closer right we just invade <laughs> obnoxious I, as trudeau is don't want to give him a pass but obnoxious and a threat to american hegemony are two different things well and the uh, to the point about how they want to use the the levers of power here in the u.s um there is something very compelling about the way they talk about this it's like look we we've shown you liberalism is dead like look what it's done it's harmed everybody you know, you know we're we're going to hell in a handbasket because of liberalism so we got to throw that out and we're but instead of building something new which used to be the kind of 
quasi-utopian religious political movement way of answering that that challenge. They're saying we're just going to take over what's here, having obviously disregarded decades of history of the administrative state and 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 centuries of experience uh, with what happens when you have a massive bureaucracy of this sort. And they want us to trust them to shift that to the point where their Catholic, largely Catholic uh, moral values are the governing philosophy. And it's not it, it's not even utopian because it's just not well thought through. How would you actually do that in practice in a secular country without throwing out the Constitution, which to your Jacobin point, Noah, is exactly what the other extreme. Well, I mean, the guest say. authors are straight up Jacobins. They say that in their bios. Uh, but but when they actually but you're right you're absolutely right about this post liberalism idea so when they see demands for liberalism on the streets in Tehran in Hong Kong it's like a Westworld host looking at their own schematics they don't see anything they can't acknowledge it it doesn't comport with the worldview well so uh, interestingly enough there is a piece uh, in uh, on uh, Saurabh's website compact <clears throat> by a professor at Catholic. University named John Esconis, which um, is straight up Marxist, although he says Marx's uh, the solution Marx saw to the problems of modernity, um, which was that technological advancement would lead to the would lead to the uh, working class taking over. Um, what that he 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 got he got it wrong as a matter of fact that technology has now become an imprisoning, uh, constantly revolutionary force that is you know d that uh, needs to be harnessed, but that you know Marx really got it right. You know Marx kind of got it right about the way modernity works, and um, uh, you know the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing revolutionizing the instruments of production blah 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 so basically it is kind of like it's not that true marxism hasn't been attempted marxism is unworkable but uh its prescriptions and its portrait of of a of an unjust and unequal and awful society that's that's correct that's correct so this is the into the at the same time Saurabh and his colleague uh Matt Schmitz write this thing about how Trump's the man and he's he's the guy we need to follow and all of that okay so let's see where this goes you know is Trump you know is Trump 2024 going to be a sort of semi-Marxist is they're going to have a weird intellectual semi-Marxist tinge to it I don't know stranger things have happened um not really where I thought this was going but you know such is life. But I do know this. And what I know is that it's fall. And this is, you know, the kind of time when you want to cozy up in bed as the temperature starts to drop, as you're, as you're, you know, uh, feeling, feeling the bite in the air, you want to be cozy, you want to be comfy, you want bow and branch sheets uh, to hop into your soft, cozy bed and get yourself a beautiful night of sleep. Bull and Branch sheets use only the best 100% organic cotton treads on earth for a superior softness, and, and they only get more luxurious with every wash. You focus on thread quality, so their sheets feel impossibly soft and luxurious. They come in nine colors, fit all mattress sizes. You'll feel the difference the moment you lie down. Best of all, Bull and Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns. 
all, on all orders. And this is a may have a mission that helps you sleep better at night. Fully traceable end-to-end sourcing ensures quality. The first 100% organic fair trade certified bedding company ever made using 90% less water than conventional production with zero pesticides or other toxic chemicals. Try the sheets that will make the coziest season fall the coziest season of the year. Get 15% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use promo code commentary at bowenbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. Okay, where do we want to go now? Uh, What are we talking about here? So we were were talking about uh, New York gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin and his news over the weekend and how it relates to the political dynamic. Exactly. States. Lee Selden lives in a town on Eastern Long Island called Shirley. Yes, it's literally called Shirley. I am serious. Call it Yay, Shirley. You made the jokes. Okay. <laughs> um, he and his wife were off doing an event uh, in the Bronx, actually, and his daughters, he has twin daughters, 16 years old. They were doing their homework and suddenly shots ring out. They hit the deck, they hit the floor, they call the cops. Two guys, apparently, in some kind of a, we don't know much more about this, end up hiding under their porch, having shot each other. It's like a John Woo movie. Like, they're they're they're, they're under the porch shooting each other with guns pointing at each other. The cops arrest them. Uh, Lee Zeldin has been trying to make an issue out of the crime wave in New York State and New York City. Um and uh, and here we are. Um, and it's very interesting because uh, there are two portraits of this of this race. I, m- most people do not think that he really has a chance of prevailing in November. But there are penumbras and emanations and private polling and stuff like that 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 suggests that he is far closer to uh, the appointed governor, Kathy Hochul, who took over when uh, when. Andrew Cuomo resigned, who was a congressman from Buffalo when she became lieutenant governor. Um, So Kathy Hochul is running uh, and is running a campaign almost exclusively about abortion and Trump, that that, uh, Zeldin is uh, too close to Trump and he uh, he's pro-life. And so he's an extremist and you can't have him. And he was a Trumpian and all this. And Zeldin's saying this state is out of control the city is out of control the state is out of control crime is everywhere and now he has a very personal way to his daughters had to like go hide under a bed uh until the cops showed up because there was gunfire outside his house in a in a you know in a bedroom suburb of new york city i mean it's not really a site it's like it's 70 miles or 60 miles or something like that from new york so it's not like people aren't really commuting to and from the city exactly uh but it's pretty horrifying and it's a very middle class town like this is not a well-to-do you know this is a this is a long island suffolk county working class town okay and there's a lot of gang activity and it gets to all this stuff that we're hearing about on the campaign trail that republicans are going you know, we don't see it because we're in New York and in D.C., right? But um, if you're out there in places where there are competitive races and all of this, Republicans are hitting crime, 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 crime. In like Pennsylvania, 70 percent of Oz's uh, yeah. ad buys recently right. have been about crime. Against Fed- right. So that's Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. We've got Wisconsin. We've got Ron Johnson going at 
Democratic central candidate Mandel Barnes for being a police defunder, a decarcerator, and of course, for um, in a state where somebody in Kenosha drove a truck, uh, you know, into people and, you know, killed them just a year ago or two years. I can't remember what it was. Um, and about which Barnes has nothing to say. He's the lieutenant governor of the state. So, and everywhere we hear this is the big thing. Where it's not this, it is immigration. And uh, what do we not read about in the pages of the, or or see on cable news outside of Fox? Are we hearing a lot about crime? Are we hearing the fact that the Justice Department last week released a crime study, the National Crime Study, claiming that crime had dropped nationally by a percentage point from twenty from from the year before, with forty percent of the country not reporting, and that forty percent that is not reporting are the places where crime has grown the fastest and are the most populous. So they have released a false. Crime statistics, the federal government has really, it's sort of like Vietnam. It's like the numbers that were released by the Pentagon and the war, the war effort in Vietnam, like they're releasing fraudulent numbers. Well, and they, and no one, no one on that side of the aisle wants to talk about how people have been for a couple of years now voting with their feet to leave places that have the the most liberal uh, uh, crime laws. So that's California and New York, number one and two, and they go to Texas and Florida. The, the blue state folks, that's the only way they can deal with with a lot of the the sort of sense of of instability and the sense of insecurity that a lot of people have in these places. Right. OK, so I want to postulate a theory. Have you guys and I'll, I'll try to do it really quickly. So here's my theory there. We uh, liberal media doesn't want to cover this because it tilts Republican. Right. So we could just sort of just go with that. But I think there's something deeper going on. And it is this that. Um, when they have to write about immigration or they have to write about crime, they have to allow for the fact that crime is up and people are worried and all that. And the immigration, you know, there have been a record number of um, people being interdicted at the borders. And there's, a you know, uh, counties in Texas are being overrun and all of that. And they, they keep trying to move on to sideshow issues, but they have to sort of acknowledge simple realities that, you know, two million people uh you know have been have been caught trying to cross into the united states and uh that's just the ones we know that we've caught so uh why doesn't why can't them aside from the they don't want to help the republicans and i here is my theory my theory is that in the when it comes to crime and immigration we have a battered and terrorized senior editorial leadership at in, at news institutions across the country and they are battered and terrorized on issues of race and ethnicity and writing about crime particularly in majority black cities creates the conditions under which if you write about it and you just say the color of the person who committed the crime your own newsroom could start revolting against you as a senior as a senior leader of editorial management in that you are perpetuating stereotypes about race. And similarly with immigration, 
how are you going to talk about immigration without talking about where the immigrants come from and what is that going to do when with your with your um woke population young population that works in your newsrooms and uh and has um succeeded in terrorizing you into changing all kinds of editorial policies in relation to this and i think that they literally don't know how to write about crime and immigration the a they don't want to and b they do not know how to do it in well, a way that will that will not cause a revolt in the ranks and threaten their own editorial livelihoods they sort of know how to do it which is to say that they 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 switch the focus because i think you're exactly right but so what instead of writing exactly about the crime they they pull back and write about what they perceive as the structural issues um that have uh laid the groundwork for the conditions um in which these in which people find themselves um desperate um uh and you know having no choice but to but to commit these crimes or as in the case of this this fascinating and sort of horrifying case out of brooklyn where a woman's dog was was killed and and you know there was a there's a known guy wandering around in this park like sort of assaulting attacking people the story becomes about the the pullback is how will these really good earnest honest liberals deal with the fact that someone who is not like them who is a, a different race and and obviously up to criminal mischief uh, how will they handle punishing this person should they even think about punishing because as Abe says there are all these structural forces at work whereas most people look at that story and go this guy needs to be placed under arrest and if he's mentally ill he needs to be medicated and taken care of in that you know in that system but something needs to be done you don't just sit there wringing your hands if someone's going around killing people's dogs and, and assaulting others shout I mean, out to john leland the author of that piece it is the best newspaper article published this one, year as yeah. far as i can tell this portrait of this world around prospect park brooklyn where um, a progressive woman's dog is um, is beaten by uh, by an aggressive um, you know person of no fixed residence apparently and ends up dying uh, because his jaw was cracked and he gets sepsis and dies and then she's like <clears throat> he had attacked her he was going to attack her she like puts up posters saying let's find this guy and then the entire world of progressive Park Slope Brooklyn goes at her for possibly wanting to involve the justice system in the case of somebody who is violent going around he hit the dog because the dog went after him for going after his owner and anyway john leland does a remarkable job with this with this article it's published in the new york times so we should you know Having said, the New York Times doesn't want to write about this stuff, but it, but no, I want to give the Times a little bit of credit actually, because I was just looking for the most yeah. liberal possible straight news take on Eric Adams' declaration over the weekend that New York City is in a state of emergency as a result of an influx of migrants, and he's blaming most of this on this Texas program begun in April, busing migrants north to a variety of cities, New York City one of them, and Eric Adams is putting all the much of the blame on. Um, on Texas. And the New York Times writes that that is just not true, simply not true. Even setting aside the 12,700 migrants and shelters, the population of the city's main shelter system has risen by 6% since mid-April. And it goes on to blame exactly who deserved blame. 
Uh, quote, rents are increasing. Too little affordable housing is being built. Evictions resumed after a two-year pandemic moratorium. Landlords get away with illegally rejecting tenants who pay for government pay with government vouchers. State prison system is discharging inmates directly into the shelter system. And families who reach the maximum limit at the, uh, domestic violence shelters uh, are forced into the Department of Homeless Service service shelters. So it's a it's a failure on the part of just about every aspect of government agencies in New York City that deal with this problem. It's not just a political issue. And Eric Adams, rather than, you know, put the blame where it deserves on his own city's services, is doing the Republicans work for them by highlighting the migrant crisis. Okay, it's even more interesting than that. I mean, you get a lot of the details right. But so he's complaining about 17,000 extra migrants. We have counties in Texas or cities in Texas that are seeing 17,000 new migrants a week. These are rural counties. These are not places with enormous social services or whatever. New York, the problem for Adams, and this is where the rubber meets the road and why he is, I think, establishing himself as a comically disastrous mayor. The problem is that New York has a uh, has a series of consent decrees with largely struck with uh, liberal groups that were suing the city that require that provide uh, require a certain level of treatment and care and support for illegal immigrants who come under the city's aegis and it's expensive you have to provide them housing you have to provide them certain levels of social support it costs a lot of money adams this is not what adams wants to spend his money on on people particularly Venezuelans coming up from Venezuela. Yeah, no kidding. Congrat welcome welcome to the national immigration crisis. You know, New York was once a center of where illegal immigration co- came from, mostly from uh you know, the Caribbean and islands. Like there were 750,000 illegal Dominicans living in New York City. That's a lot of people. That was like 10% of the population of New York City was largely illegal from the Dominican Republic. Um, And the city handled it on its own, like didn't walk around saying, you know, whining and crying. And in fact, the Dominicans made a life for themselves and the city could use them uh, in some ways. Uh, This is an entirely different set of circumstances. And he did, interestingly enough, say the Biden administration needs to help us. This is Biden's fault. So he's just trying to cast off blame. They tried Greg Abbott. They tried DeSantis. Now it's Biden's fault. He's flailing. He's a very unimpressive person as mayor. Uh, And, you know, it's interesting because he won for one reason and one reason only. He was a cop, though he was a anti-cop cop, but he was a cop and he said he was going to lower crime and he was going to take on crime and crime is up 40% since he became mayor. So where this guy is going, meanwhile, he's hired the chancellor, the school's chancellor's girlfriend for a $250,000 a year job at City Hall. And the chancellor of the city schools has hired his girlfriend for a $250,000 job at the Department of Education. And if you wanna know why Eric Adams might end up not mayor anymore in in about a year, uh, the city could really turn on him and use this pay for play quid pro quo job thing with his with Philip Banks, the um or uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 chancellor of the city's schools 
I mean, that's a clear corrupt intent uh, game that he's playing. And and the, the city's uh, political structure could well go go at him and take him out. Um, and this is him just flailing. Uh, I mean, he is way worse than even I thought he was going to be. And I had sort of had weird hope. I was like, well, you know, you never know. You never know what's going to happen. Zelensky, who knew Zelensky would rise to the occasion? Well, I would say that Eric Adams has has fulfilled every you know one's worst uh, possibilities with him. But it is a fascinating thing because here he is, uh, and he's not even running for office. Like <clears throat> you know, he's just trying to you know he he this is he doesn't want to talk about this. He wants to go to a restaurant at night, get free food, and have people come and kiss his ring. But the, and but instead, is, he actually has to deal with a problem. But see, this is where I, I think I pose this as a question to you, New Yorkers. I mean, in, in previous eras, when when the city has gotten into this situation, they actually could elect someone who was not a typical big city, you know, deep blue D after his name mayor to shake things up. I'm obviously thinking Giuliani. But I look I mean, I look with despair at my own city, which has had more than one carjacking every day since the begin beginning of just this year. Violent crime is up. Crime is up all around. People are thinking about leaving or have left. It's bad. And yet I look at what's available to voters and I think, well, you know, I just have to sit here and be cynical because I'm, you know, definitely far more conservative than most of my fellow D.C. residents, and they're not going to elect someone to fix it. But do you think New York could get to a point where it would do that again, or has the political climate changed and that's really not possible anymore? So there was a population in New York of, you know, um, of ethnic whites, uh, outer borough whites, Italians, Polish, Jews, People lived in Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island, um, uh, not so much the Bronx after the 1950s. Um, you know, they'd served in World War II. You know, they were uh, working class or lower middle class. They were all Democrats. Um, but, you know, the crime wave hit and that stuff hit them. And, you know, the city elected the first limousine liberal, the first famous limousine liberal, John Lindsay, in 1965, was mayor. Till 1973, <clears throat> and then we got uh, Abe Beam, who was a machine politician, who was supposed to be like a guy who was not, you know, who was sensible, but he turned out to be totally inefficient. And then Ed Koch was mayor for 12 years, and then you had this interregnum with uh, with David Dinkins, and then Giuliani was mayor, and then Bloomberg was mayor, and uh, all of that was spoke to the cities like, all right, you know, we're we here we are, we're big liberal progressives and all this. But basically, when it comes to running the city, it's too dangerous to invest power in the hands of these people. And the last person who was going to be that guy was Anthony Weiner. Anthony Weiner, who came back from his Anthony Weiner, who was an outer borough Jewish congressman politician from the famous. Jewish seat uh, that had been held by uh, Manny Seller and Stephen Solars and then Chuck Schumer and then him. He was the guy who was going to come in and it's like, okay, let's let's get serious. We're going to deal with crime. We're going to do this. And of course, he's a psychopathic monster and, <clears throat> and, and insanely self-destructive. And then he started texting, uh, you know, a 15-year-old girl again. And that was the end of him. He would have won the mayoralty. In 2013, he would have kept it out of Bill de Blasio's hands. There was no other person in that race in 2013. You could say Adams, by the way, 
was a revivification of that strategy. Adams ran the most rightward campaign in the Democratic field. He's just an idiot and a clown. I mean, I, I say that almost descriptively. I sent you that video. Remember that that look through yeah. your kid's room video for drugs? I of met him, him yeah. <laughs> in 1997 when he ran an organization called 100 Black Men in Law Enforcement Who Care. And I couldn't believe he came in. I was the editorial page of the New York Post. We had a we had a an editorial board meeting with him. And he left. And I was like, what just who is this guy? Like, what kind of nonsense was he peddling? And I'm not even talking about ideologically. Like he was, and then I okay, so it's 20 years later, who that 25 years later, who the hell knows? People grow, they change, and all of this. But again, I just want to point this out. He so I don't know. I don't there what, are people I want to know what nonsense he was peddling. Oh, it all had to do with talking about how I mean it was all sort of anti-Giuliani stuff about the second mm. term and how, you know, Giuliani, you know, d- didn't like cops. Uh I, I don't even remember what it was. I mean, half of it was that he couldn't complete a sentence. Uh and it was it was hard to understand the way he spoke English. And, but then, you know, anyway, now the whole point is he came in, he said, I'm going to solve crime and crime is up 40%. I don't know. I don't know where you go with that. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to clean up the subways and I'm going to solve the crime problem. And crime is up 40%. I mean, I, I, again, like, you know, it's like you say, I'm going to clean up. I'm, you know, we're going to pick up the garbage and you don't pick up the garbage, you know, I mean, where where do you go from that as a politician? Like every single person who runs against him in four years will say, you promised this and here we are. So that's our, that's our theme for the day, I guess. We are not bringing our best. <laughs> well, that's that goes, I think that goes without saying. Not that I know who our best are. And of course we should mention- Well, they're avoiding politics, go. I would suspect for, for a host of reasons. Right, that's or- That's not great. Yeah, or we have politicians like Ben Sass who are getting the hell out of Dodge, right? Senator from Nebraska, who's apparently going to become chancellor of the University of Florida. Having He was a, he was a college president before he became a senator, uh, Ben Sass. And, um, you know, he's been in the Senate for eight years. I get, wait, is it is 14 he, he was elected? I think it was 14. So he's been senator for eight years. And, uh, you know, his own, the Republican Party in Nebraska censured him uh for you know voting for impeachment and other 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 crimes and like tried to primary him and all of this and i think he hasn't been a particularly efficient senator he doesn't seem to care that much about the institution of the senate per se and he's basically done uh so yeah we're not bringing our best because he was you know when he got elected and in his early going like he was the he was like the possible like the kind of Republican Moynihan, right? Kind of like an egg-headed college uh, president who was going to talk elevatedly about men and courage and how to run a responsible life and all of this. And then the Trump wave came in and he just never found his footing. Whenever I start thinking, I still think that Republicans are going to do very well in November. Yeah, Take one chamber, maybe both. A lot of gubernatorial uh, state houses, legislative seats. And then when I start thinking about the day after November, it just gets so much worse because then you have to deal with a Republican majority. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we are, I think we're now 30 days, 29 days to the election. I think it's now 29 days or 30. Anyway, um, it 
this whole the democratic surge thing like if you read everything that is being written about where the democrats are now there was a fascinating quote from a leading democratic fundraiser on saturday in the new york times where he said i wish the election had been a month ago that is not something that you want a leading <laughs> democratic strategist to be saying that we peaked in September, because there's a lot of time between September and November. What that means is that the Republican, and we're gonna have to go back, if Republicans do really well in November, particularly in the Senate, we're gonna have to double back and say that, or do much better in the House than we think, that all this, the Republicans don't know what they're doing and they're screwing up and it's all terrible that was going on in June and July and August, was incredibly unjust because they were holding back their money to spend it in September and October. And they are flooding the airwaves in swing districts and every district that is competitive with this message, particularly about crime. And if they had if they had blown their wads in in the summer, they could have the reverse of Dobbs, right? Which is Dobbs was fantastic for Democrats. The minute that the decision came down, but it's been three months already and people are getting used to it. And the rage level is just dissipating by 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 definition, like you can't you can't keep it up at the level you need you need it to be kept up. And we haven't I'm not even talking about the economy here. So I don't know. I think Noah's Noah's right. Uh, Noah's been saying that we've been saying this, and uh, you know, we had that same thing everybody said where things were going the other way for a while. But um, I have no idea what the number is or what the number is going to be. But right now, if somebody said you have to bet your house on do Republicans take the House by a comfortable margin and take the Senate, I would bet that they take both. I know the cautious thing to do is to say the likeliest thing is that there's no net change in the Senate because, you know, they'll win in Georgia, but the Republicans will lose in Pennsylvania. They'll trade this seat for that seat. And, da, 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 da. and if the House is wavy, the Senate will go. I know that didn't happen in 2010, although Republicans won six seats in the Senate in 2010. It's not like they didn't win. They didn't net seats. They just didn't net 12 or 11 or however many they I think they needed 11 um, but winning six seats is a lot anyway uh, anybody have anything else no. alright we'll be back tomorrow for Abe Christina no I'm John Podhoritz keep the candle burning